Welcome to Shelving Cart. I'm Sarah. And I'm Teddy. And we're both librarians, um, and we do a podcast book club with each other and all of you. On Shelving Cart, we talk about books like it's a one-hour book club meeting, so we talk about likes, dislikes, reviews, general feelings, and more. But today we will be doing something completely different. We are talking to Michelle Min Sterling, author of Camp Zero, although there will likely still be spoilers ahead, so be warned. Thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on the podcast with us. It is truly an honor to have you here. I'm super thrilled. Thank you for having me. First off, we just wanted to say that we both loved Camp Zero. Um, We both really enjoyed the mood, the writing style, the power of the story, everything. Um, But my favorite story about this is that we were actually together while I was finishing reading the book um, on vacation in New Jersey. And we were all we were all shoved into a room, Teddy with his fiance and me with my boyfriend. We were all shoved into one room and I was reading and we were all reading and I was reading it and I got to the hurricane part and I looked over and I live in Boston in Alston and I look over at my boyfriend and I go, you would never abandon me in a hurricane, would you? (laughs) (laughs) Just an arbitrary random question. Right. Just out of curiosity, you wouldn't do that, right? Yeah. Teddy turned to his fiance and was like, you you wouldn't abandon me in a hurricane either, would you? <laughs> so so we all had to assure each other that in the event of a hurricane, we would stick together um, and no one would get on any helicopters. Um, which that was, yeah, uh, yeah. There was a hurricane in Boston last weekend or like there was going to be one. I kept thinking about it. I kept, I kept. <laughs> So you did get assurance that they wouldn't abandon no, no either. One no, no, no one would leave. No one, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That should be sort of like an entry level question into any right. new relationship. It's like, what, how would you treat this relationship? And, you know, so the ongoing climate crisis, I think it's actually an important question. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's like very legitimate, right? Just make sure that there are no grants among us. That's the, that's the vibe. Right. Exactly. Okay, great. So we're, we're going to just jump into questions if that sounds good to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Um, Can you introduce yourself to our audience and maybe give a little background on yourself, how you got into writing, and especially sci-fi and dystopia? Absolutely. So my name is Michelle Min Sterling. I'm the author of Camp Zero. Um, I live also in the Boston area. I live in Cambridge, actually, but I used to live in Alston. Um, I'm from Western Canada. I was born and raised there, and I ended up coming to Boston for an MFA. Um, It wasn't something that I, like, you know, for like, like many of us who like kind of land in the city because of academic stuff, um, it kind of happened indirectly and I ended up actually staying. And so like a lot of Camp Zero is about the perspective of kind of looking at Canada from the vantage point of the U.S. and about the sort of relationships between Americans and Canadians. So I'm, you know, I'm a Canadian who lives in the U.S. And so I think like part of what I was really interested in exploring in the book was the relationships to the two countries, but also how like place is such an important part of that as well. And so the book is, you know, like partially set in Boston, partially set in Northern Canada, um, and kind of imagines um, the climate crisis and the crisis that we're currently in, um, ongoing, accelerated to the point where Americans are essentially looking north for what they perceive is as a better future. And as we like recap zero, we see that that plays out in a variety of different ways, depending on subject position, you know, <laughs> who you are and what you're sort of looking for um, and class and income inequality as well. And of course, gender is also part of that. So you teach dystopia slash utopia, right? At Berkeley College of Music. And how does that class inform your writing, if at all? Does, you, does it keep you inspired working with students? 
It does. I mean, I kind of touched on Sarah's like earlier question about how I got into sci-fi. I've always been interested in speculative narratives. Like I, I'm, it's just for me the most kind of how do I say this like exciting space to work in as a writer because you can kind of imagine these scenarios that are very much tethered to reality and the place we're in right now, but have this kind of expansive. Um, sort of wild vision to them. Um, and that dystopia utopian class I teach at Berkeley was like super key to that. Like the book is about essentially about a variety of different utopias or like kind of perceived utopias that turn dystopian. And I'm really interested in that. Um, how altruism, how idealism plays into kind of conceiving a better future, but how that can be kind of compromised by, um, you know, <laughs> lifestyle or ideals or politics. Um, and because I wanted to think about this, I kind of conceived of this class as a way to talk about these topics with my students. Um, and it's been really rewarding, I think, partially because of a generational thing, like being, you know, I'm old, I'm a different generation than my students, but also because I think like a lot of these questions are really pressing for people in their like late teens, early twenties, when they think of the future and maybe they can't imagine it. And so one of the central, um, kind of exercises we do in that class is for students to imagine their own utopia and then show a dystopian underbelly um, kind of connected to that. And so we use, um, we look at Ursula K. Le Guin as a model, you know, who I love. We just finished recording, like literally 15 minutes ago, we just finished our recording on an Ursula K. Le Guin book. We are also huge fans of her. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, is, so we look at the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Amelis, um, which is... <laughs> basically about that you know a kind of like highly designed utopia in which the citizens of this place um you know that they're sort of like the, the perceived perfection of their life is like contingent on the exploitation of this child who kind of you know is is, is kept you know in, in very depraved conditions under the city and so that's I think something that is like really tangible and kind of strikes fear in the heart of anyone who has a soul <laughs> which is that what does it mean that my own kind of you know, perfect life or kind of perceived perfect life is actually contingent on exploitation of others. And so that's a really rewarding conversation. But I've been teaching the class now for a number of years. And I've noticed that there's been a shift from um, wanting to kind of imagine utopian imaginaries out of dystopia. Like, I think that's something that's really interesting. And so we've kind of inverted the exercise and, and occasionally where they imagine a dystopia and they then begin to sort of conceive of utopian mm. possibilities out of that. And I think mm -hmm. that like in some ways it shows a shift also, I think in terms of how we're conceiving of the future, like we don't want to think of it as only being like destruction and mayhem and chaos, but as an actual like livable and habitable possibility. Yeah. I'm sure with the last few years too of COVID everything I'm sure that that the need to like imagine a more positive from like what already feels so negative became more necessary with your students definitely absolutely and to have some sense of control too even in something that feels quite like uncontrollable which is like the actual <laughs> you know physical reality of of the planet that we live on so that's very interesting um at Berkeley, since it's most it, it's music students, um, do you find that it's interesting working with music students? Like, I don't know, have you ever worked with students who aren't primarily music students um, before in like your teaching career? Because um, I'm just interested if there's like any differences in how they might come to a creative project like that in the course. 
Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I used, I mean, I have taught like students who are only, you know, interested in being writers, you know, yeah. they, they take creative writing specifically. Um, and I really, I really enjoy teaching at Berkeley, partially because I think there's like a real application to what they're learning. So a lot of the students are like either they're performers, they're singer songwriters, maybe they're um, composers. Uh, and I think the idea of narrative is such an important component of music, even if it, is, it doesn't have like a direct lyrical application. So this idea that you're sort of <laughs> world building through sound essentially, right? And so like a lot of what I teach is about these kind of immersive environments that students can kind of conceive of for themselves. Um, that allows them to have some kind of sense of autonomy or direction to it as well. And they're also like super creative, which for me is perfect. I love yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and they have really, they come at writing in a kind of indirect way um, that I think is like super exciting. So I've had like incredible writer students um, and it's just like a cool place to teach. Like, yeah. I'm sure either both of you have like kind of walked through campus and seen the vibe. It's like, yeah. I think like, unlike any other institution, the Boston area, and that's like very much you know, a place for like creative expression, um, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's rare. It was actually a rarity in the world we live in right yes, now. Yes, definitely. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, um, can you talk more, uh, you talked about it a little bit, but can you talk more about the inspiration for Camp Zero and then also talk about the process of writing the book? Um, so the idea for me, for the book came when I was on a, a sort of dramatic cross train journey across Canada. So I was taking like a three day, three night train um, from Toronto going west to Vancouver. I like where I, like my family lives in Western Canada. And I stopped in Northern Alberta um, to visit a relative who at the time was my cousin. He was actually working in the oil industry. So um, I have a lot of family members um, who have worked in the oil industry or currently do. And I took like, you know, I stopped in, in this town and then took another bus further um, like further north and ended up in this oil town. And this was like during, this is about, about a decade ago. So I would say even maybe even longer. So it was like during the period of like peak um, oil extraction in that region. And so oil was something like 100 American dollars per barrel. So like the whole, the region was full of workers. And most of them, I would say were men. Like when I was on the bus, I was the only woman on the bus. And when I arrived in this place, I was really interested in it where I was began to sort of think like, well, with every boom comes a bust, right? You know, like, and even in that period, it was like a lot of the conversations we're having around like decarbonization, you know, moving, moving away from fossil fuel extraction, those conversations weren't really happening and in, in the same way. And so I began to sort of imagine what this particular place or a place like this might look like when oil is no longer being extracted. Another wave of kind of um, interest takes place. Um, and because, you know, thinking about, I wanted to write about climate, um, and I, but I specifically wanted to write about the idea of instead of oil being extracted, you know, cold is almost like a commodity there, right? Like the, the weather plays out such an important role in the book yeah. and how people might actually go there um, to kind of feel this rare commodity of being cold, you know, of a more inhabitable place because of the climate crisis playing out in the South. And so that was like the first spark. Um, it took a long time for me to figure out the braided narrative. Um, originally, I thought it would just take place in this like kind of abandoned, dilapidated, you know, ghost town, former oil town. It would be about the workers who were drawn there. Um, but eventually, as I got more into sort of the world building aspect of it, um, 
and some of some of some of the like historical precedent of the North as well. I started thinking about like the White Alice strand, which was the the last strand that I added to the book, and I think like kind of gave it a different perspective. Um, it made the story bigger as opposed to being kind of focused on this one place. Yeah. We're White Alice fans in this house. We love White Alice. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. 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 What is it yeah. about the the group that you like? Oh. Well, I would I mostly just want to live there. Like I <laughs> Like I, like I want to be in. That. in that. Yeah, no, yeah, I no. Think I think they're, they're when they when they take take agency, agency for themselves, for themselves in, that in that way. I get like, like fluttery, fluttery, you know, you know where they when they finally, finally um, commit to like isolating and separating. And, separating. Um, yeah. and I and I right, they're right, like, they're sort like sort of self sufficiency and and also you know they give off lesbian commune vibes. So who doesn't? love that and want to move there i don't know <laughs> who among us wouldn't say yes teddy loves to play a game where he like imagines that we're uh all in like uh, surviving in a cabin and who could come because of what skills they bring to the cabin and i feel like white alice very much is the cabin that. yeah, yeah <laughs> that. long before he, we ever read <laughs> Camp Zero, Teddy has been talking about that. So I think that that really hit home. We're still missing someone who knows how to use a ham radio. So if you know anyone, hit us up for that. <laughs> You're recruiting for your own, for your yeah, own yeah. isolationist <laughs> commune. Yeah. 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 yeah, definitely. And when I was reading Camp Zero, I, I feel like the White Alice parts, I was like, ah, Michelle just keeps hitting me in the heart over and over again in here. Like those parts of the books, I've definitely like the part that part of the book I really felt like I was like I'm really like I don't know just like Teddy said it's the fluttery feeling in the book like getting to your heart um but I really enjoyed White Alice there was the the complexity too of like the 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 dystopian part of the utopia right so of the of White Alice I felt was very fascinating yeah and that uh, they're all like a big organism Right. You know what I mean? Like they're right. all one, right? And we'll yes. come back to White Alice's cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. we will. Yeah, yeah there's lots, to, lots yeah. to get into. Yes, yeah. yeah. And we and can it, do spoilers too, right? Yes, That's yes. Okay. yeah. Oh, okay. please, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. We're, we're gonna. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. already laid the whole thing out in the yeah. okay. episode, yeah. so this yeah. is good. Yes. Um, we're both librarians. Um, and so we're going to talk to you about libraries because that's just what we do. Um, but we talked at length about the role of libraries in dystopian fiction when we discussed Camp Zero. Um, and specifically, we talked about uh, the Boston Public Library main branch becoming a server room. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the role you see the Boston Public Library and libraries in general playing in your book and also in speculative fiction in general. Yeah, it's a great question. And I am a huge lover of libraries and like, you know, it's like where I learned to read, you know, like I was one of those kids that was, you know, spent every weekend at the public library, you know, reading my way through like Stephen King at like a kind of inappropriate age and, you know, things like that. <laughs> yes. That's what the library is for. Exactly. Yes. And like that sense of discovery and kind of possibility and, you know, just it was crucial, like absolutely crucial to how I conceive of myself as like a reader. And then of course, a writer, like I just, um, like I grew up on an island. I mean, it was a large island, Vancouver Island, but it was still an island, right? So it was separate from the mainland. It felt like a place where uh, things were happening, you know, 
<laughs> in other places. And so the library was like a place of like connection exploration. Um, and I actually wrote a lot of Camp Zero in libraries as well. Um, you know, so I was like, would go, like, I would go to the Boston Public Library to write. Yes. Um, I did some research at Widener Library at Harvard, and I would work there. There's a library in Berlin that I worked, um, that's called the Staatsbibliothek. It's like a giant, beautiful, like, just this incredible library, actually, that would go there to work um, when I was living in Germany on and off. Um, yeah, like, so many libraries, like, love them. <laughs> and I think kind of like part of the the interest in writing about them was a concern about the potential eradication of spaces like that, you know, like spaces of exploration, like, and also like a physical space as well. Like the library is, it feels like one of the last democratic spaces, in the United States, like where anyone can go, right? It's yep. a place like regardless of, you know, citizenship, class, you know, economic realities is a place where you can just go just to hang out like if you need to use the restroom you can go there um and I I think that's just like so essential to conceiving of a kind of commons and so that was like you know important and so in the book because you know the book is much about the kind of moving away from a physical space into an online space I kind of wanted to show that as well um there's a sort of people in this book do read, they do read books, like actual texts are really important. Um, but it's sort of positioned as something that is fading out of popularity, is not really a common experience um, because of the of the flick. So that's like the piece of that sort of digital implant that everyone has. Um, and so in that particular scene, when Rose you know, goes to Boston for the first time, she sees the Boston Public Library and like, you know, she sees the the image of the library. And I think, I don't, I don't know if you remember, it says, I think it's free to all that it says on the front, yep. like inscribed on this on the side of the building. Um, and of course now it's like this, this data server where um, her whole kind of life and her sense of self and so many other people it's archived in there. Um, and so, it's not so, you know, I don't know if warning is too strong of a word, but definitely a kind of moment in which um, those types of physical spaces no longer exist um, because they've become, you know, um, sacrificed or kind of given over to the space of like online, the online feed. And I don't see technology as being inherently dystopian. Like I think technology has an incredibly liberatory quality. Um, and I'm like a huge proponent proponent of like digital archives and like being able to access things through devices. But I'm also like quite skeptical of like the sort of like <laughs> how all of that, at least at, at this point is through sort of like corporate control and commodification. Yeah. And so I'd love to see something where it was actually, you know, wasn't regulated through that. Um, but yeah, like a, a deep longing for like the library to remain. I mean, I mean, both of you work on like on the ground. Like, what what is your sense of like the library? Do you think it's in danger? Or do you think it's still? Well, I I definitely think it is the like you said. It's like one of the last like non commodity places in this country. Um, definitely. I mean, a lot of places globally as well, not just in the United States. Um, because you can just walk in and use the bathroom. You don't have to spend any money while you're in the library. Like that is the beauty. I think it like takes when I walk into a library, I feel like it takes stress off. Like if you're like out and about doing something, it takes stress off. Cause you know, you're not going to be like enforced to have like forced to have a sort of like money exchange interaction. Um, 
Teddy and I, I think, also both grew up as library kids. There's like a the, the direct pipeline of library kids to librarian is very real. Yeah. Um, since I work in an academic library, it's interesting because in an academic library, you see how it's like never going to go away because these students still need that. There's like the and it's more insular because you have the support of an institution around you you don't have to have like the public support behind you because as long as the institution is supporting you the library will go on and the like my library actually we were like the only space for them to like do work get help etc etc and like that community aspect that I think you were touching on with like the connection outside of your yourself I think it was one of the only community spots on campus um but of course, it's digit like a lot of it is becoming online too. Um, my feeling is that, like you said, technology can be uh, like liberating too. Um, my feeling is as long as we maintain the space, if even if all of the content is online, we if we maintain the space, we'll be okay and say like this is where we gather to do this. Um, I think it'll be okay. But Teddy. You're, as a public librarian, you might have a lot of different <laughs> different yeah. views. Well, we don't have that same, like, gentle parent hug from the institution, right? Like, we don't have that same support. Um, I do, this is, like, truly the funniest thing that happens to me every time it happens, that someone will come into the library to use the library and be like, do people still use the library? And it's like, I don't know, you're here. Like, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um surely they, they do, do. Um, um so, so i think, think there's like this really interesting procession as like as we move forward of like libraries being in danger from technology um but i have seen so many public libraries like embrace and grow with technology um and one of the main things we talked about when we talked about camp zero and libraries was like i think people really think of um when they think of losing libraries, they think of destruction of knowledge. Um, like we really go straight to like the library of Alexandria, like the dark ages, like we didn't know, like we could be so far ahead by now if we didn't like lose all that knowledge. And like, sure, yeah, but I am a proud custodian of junky romances. And like, that's, <laughs> I love them. Like, I, I think that like, in the sense that like, libraries are not just like repositories of like important information but also just like a place you can go to be entertained or a place you can go to sit or use the bathroom or read a book to your child or have someone else read a book to your child like all of those things libraries community center i think is still very safe that's my opinion maybe i am blessed in where i live and where i work um but that's how I see it playing out for now, um, because I think people are starting to understand library as, as community center um, rather than library as like um, place for book. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That distinction is super important, too. Um, and I like what you said about the idea of like the eradication of libraries is equated with like eradication of knowledge. Of course, that's not the case whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I think in the book like part of there is a kind there's a sort of you know it's not the major theme but it's a, like a sub theme about 
book learning, like, like, like knowledge acquisition, like who gets to learn and why and how. Um, and one of the things like, so sort of like the Walden, like the university, that's like the, you know, kind of loosely that based on Harvard. Harvard. That right, is, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not Harvard. <laughs> loosely based on a storied institution in the Boston area. <laughs> um, it, it, like it's it's something that's really interesting to me, which is like it like are the humanities like do you do you require a certain amount of privilege or um support or even like possibility in order to study the humanities? Like is the humanity something that because it's so, you know, not like you know, unfortunately, like not equated to like, you know, jobs and kind of economic gain, um, is it something that only the, you know, someone like Grant Grimley, for example, in the novel can, can study because he knows that his father will bail him out. His father has a job for him. It's just a place for him to kind of expand his his worldview or so how, sort of how he perceives it, but it doesn't really matter um, in the long run, whereas other people need to, to work in different ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Right. Grant think... can learn all the humanities he wants, but it won't give him empathy. <laughs> can you tell we love Grant? Yeah, yeah. 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 Grant is a divisive character. You know, I think like yeah. some readers actually really love him, which I think is really interesting. Um, but I would say for the most part, he's sort of seen as being like a kind of flawed character in many different ways. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I definitely think the the abandoning girlfriend to die in a hurricane so that she yeah. has to shit in a pot was one of the most alarming <laughs> things i've i was like in distress i think in a good yeah. way but i was like this is uh, like i it was um a pointing out of that hypocrisy that i like really feel like is doesn't get a light shown on it very frequently of what happens at Storied, storied institutions, institutions in the boston, in the boston area, area um, <laughs> that, that they um that doesn't, that doesn't like like of, of privilege, privilege and wealth, and wealth and and whiteness and, and, and like gender, like gender privilege, privilege and all of that, that that doesn't get a light, get a light shown, shown on it that, that that sometimes, sometimes if, you, if, if you if you read, read every, every book in the library, library um about about the, the, the opposite politics of your parents of your conservative parents if you don't walk the walk then you're not not it's not, it's not what what it's not it's worth, not it. worth it. it you know you know your your, your girlfriend, girlfriend who you love died because, because you because you weren't, weren't willing, willing to walk the walk, walk. and i think and that, I that, think that that yeah yeah was a really was a really 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 important part of, of, the, of book, the book definitely, definitely. Um, um but i can but see I can a lot see of people a lot of empathizing, empathizing with grant, with grant too, too definitely like the like he was trying yeah absolutely he was he was trying continues to try he right? continues like, to yeah. try. He continues. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was something that really interested me with him specifically. And I think the architect Mary is also kind of another version of that, a different context, which is like, is it possible? Is altruism and idealism enough? You know? Um, and I think when we kind of conceive of utopias, like those, those sort of like responses are part of that, like, like wanting, you know, deeply desiring a better future. But if a person like Grant, who is so shaped by his family, you know, like his lineage, um, his, his the sort of privilege that he's been born into, can he kind of escape it? You know, that's like why he goes to the camp, goes to Camp Zero, like why he goes to the North. And we sort of see that play out in the end where he feel like, you know, he doesn't realize how instrumentalized he's being. He thinks he's having this, like, he's finally escaping Boston. He's finally escaping his family in the floating city. But in fact, he's being played 
um, precisely for those those same qualities that he despises about himself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that ties in. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So my next question was. In your imagination, does Grant make it as a member of White Alice or does his <laughs> privilege get in the way of like their way of living? Good question. I mean, I I don't know like what Grant's future would be with White Alice. Like if he would one be okay with that or if they would even be okay with him. Yeah. Um, I don't have like a very concrete answer because I feel like the story ends where it ends like I don't yeah, have yeah. a plan oh, yeah, yeah. or a sequel at this moment in my life and actually it's interesting to me because I never it I was sort of surprised when people would ask me if I was working on a sequel because I thought that the book sort of ended um where it needed to end at least for me yeah um, so so things like for example like you know if we talk about the very ending you know like will Aurora slash Willow like you know um find Damien right you know yeah. like mm-hmm. you know like what right. will happen after they cross the border these are questions that I can kind of imagine like a, a, a variety of different things happening but I don't but I would have to like write through them in order to like fully understand I think like also what sort of happens to them is is like I th- I hope in the mind of the reader where they sort of imagine that possibility yeah. like mm-hmm. yeah for example like is I think the question I wanted for Grant joining white alice or not is like is he how do i say this like is it a triumph for him to join them or is it a kind of an affliction is it a punishment mm, mm, yeah and we, yeah. i don't and i i actually don't i think it's like up to the reader to decide whether yeah. he you know like whether he's saved you know like heavy quotations yeah. around that or whether he is actually like you know like okay now, now you're actually reached you're kind of like meeting your maker like that is <laughs> worst case scenario for you because I think you can see it on either side oh uh, yeah like, right. a huge huge chasm between those two spaces yeah like, what, right. what did what did you all think well my so- deep hope is that Grant ended up in an ice hole I'll <laughs> let you go now <laughs> so well we have so we have this running thing on the on the podcast about um what we say because we so we started off the podcast reading the Hunger Games and we were talking about it came from that we call it bing 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 when it's the like solution is written into the into the book mm-hmm. and we're like it's it's been binged for us um mm-hmm. uh but i think it was very nice to have the ending have these where you're the reader can pick where in their minds where it's going or imagine in their minds based off of the cre- characters you created without mm-hmm. that um but we were just talking about this earlier but the sometimes probably people asking you about the sequels that need to want things to be binged in the end mm, is yeah. is like the, the need for like understanding um especially when you're writing about climate crisis we want solutions but yeah. you're also a person experiencing the climate crisis while you're writing it and experiencing these things while you're writing and what you're writing about so it's hard to pre- present a solution to a problem that like we're all existing in um but yeah. for me for grant i think i just can't picture him making it so maybe it is like the hardest learning curve of his life you know but who we'll see i mean who knows <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? To be determined. I mean, I think, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. Like the the 
there is no sort of concrete solution. Like, mm. and I think it would be for me, it would feel somewhat false to say like these are the solutions and yeah. kind of like make them incredibly like you know apparent. Um, partially because the problems that are the book present are like so large and unwieldy that they yeah. kind of go beyond like just like consensus solution. Um, yeah, and. I wrote this book because I was interested like in, in exploring the questions, but also because I, I hope that like a reader would, would kind of be like, okay, well, I'm going to kind of imagine this particular vision of the future and like what I think is going to happen. And then it's, they'd kind of dovetail that back to my, maybe not only their own, their own lives, but like the world that they live in, you know, the reality that they inhabit. Um, and then there's, it's sort of like more of a relationship between that perceived future and then the sort of like grounded present. And I think if it was like a very like, okay, like the ending culminated with like clarity, then you wouldn't have that. At least for me as a reader, I wouldn't have that experience right. of being like, what next? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, it becomes didactic if you bang right. it too hard, right? Yes. And that's just- <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes. um, yeah, feel free to bring that back to your creative writing students. Um, yeah. You're binging it. No, um, yeah, I feel like it is definitely like, I don't want like to be, I don't know, Sarah and I, we have also argued about this when we were reading Jeff Vandermeer, we were reading Born by Jeff mm. Vandermeer. And we were talking about how there's like also no solution at the end of that book. Like it's unclear, like what brought about like a nice change to this dystopian environment. And yeah, I think, yeah, it's just one of those things that I would be upset if you did bang it. So thanks mm. for yeah. not doing that. Okay. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yes, yes. But also, right, yeah, like the sequel, like, would I read it? Yes, but do I feel like it ended where it needed to end? Like, absolutely. Like, yes. I didn't feel like anything was... I, I love being able to sit and wonder about which ice hole Grant is in. I feel very <laughs> assured that he's in one, but I <laughs> love wondering which one. Yeah, no. Right. Um, yeah. So... Speaking of ice holes, um, <laughs> I think I read in an interview or saw you say somewhere that you had the easiest time writing the collective voice of White Alice. And White Alice, for lack of a better term, was my favorite character. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the experience of writing them and when I can move it? <laughs> um, so I like the the idea for the for the group came from it's like some research I did around like historical precedent in the north and northern Canada um and I learned I was like interested in cold war history specifically because I think there's something about cold war so the experience of living through the cold war I mean I, I didn't I mean I was a child during the cold war but I didn't like live through the sort of like pinnacle of it but the sense that that something could happen at any moment right you imagine like sort of like how different generations like they had bunkers built in their in their their backyards there was a sort of like apocalyptic malaise that like permeated right at any moment like the world could you know be destroyed right and i and because this book has like slight kind of apocalypse i don't know if apocalyptic is the right word but it has that kind of for sense of things could change suddenly i started thinking about that history um and I learned about this, this massive infrastructure building project that took place during the Cold War that was a joint collaboration between Canada and the US to build these radar stations in the North, like across the entire the entire North, um, one line called the Distant Early Warning Line. Um, 
and it was like a huge project. It cost huge amounts of money. And the idea was basically that men would live in these stations and um, potentially detect Soviet bombers launched over the Arctic Circle towards North, North American cities. And I thought that was just like so um, incredibly like <laughs> just interesting for the moment, but also so kind of prescient for an idea of like imagining detecting the climate in the future. And so I wanted to like take one of those spaces um, and put like a different group of people there, you know? So of course it was like mostly, men. I think it was primarily men who lived there. Um, and imagine what a group of women would experience if they were to live in a space like this. Um, these stations did exist. They were all sort of like abandoned um, and, uh, I'm not, I'm not, and, you know, kind of like left to kind of dilapidate in the permafrost, um, except for this one, right? Yeah. And so that was sort of the kernel. And then the moment I started like looking at the stations, I had this like the, these archival images of them. I read some primary accounts of what it was like to live there. Um, and I guess it turned out, you know, that even if like, so this never happened, no Soviet bombers were launched over the Arctic Circle that, you know, that was, that actually luckily never actually happened, but there were some accounts that if it were to happen, it would be too late, right? That um, they wouldn't be able to warn the South in time. And that just like kind of maps on directly to sort of perceiving the climate crisis, right? Which is what is it to kind of like wait for a threat that is ongoing, um, but by the moment you detect it, it actually is too late, right? And so that's essentially what they're doing. Like the group or the group of women are sent by the U.S. military to observe this place. Um, but I also, you know, wanted to like imagine like what would it be like for a group of women to kind of live in that environment? Like, would they choose to separate themselves from the world that they had kind of left behind and that's essentially what they do and like how would they do that um and I didn't really want it to be just like a full-on utopia because I felt like that would be sort of too limiting in terms of the scope of their story and so I wanted to see like is it you know one of the central questions is like is it possible to leave and like separate yourself and create what you conceive of as a better world and then not have the rest of that world encroach on that space and so they're there for an for a while um but eventually of course they run out of supplies they need to like start acting out in ways that are um become sort of more destructive and violent in order to safeguard their space so a lot of it is also about like marking territory and the kind of mm. you know it's about these like layers of settlement that take in place um yeah. so because like the first thing was like, like the book is that part, part of the book is narrated from this, like, you know, sort of collective perspective, you know, they're sort of almost like one voice. We don't really know who's actually telling the story. And once I had, I, you know, I wrote the first chapter of that and it just like, once I had the voice, I was able to write it very quickly. Um, yeah. It was probably the least labored over of all the sections. I think the grant sections were the hardest to write. I think um, I worked just because they were so, um, it was harder for me to like kind of imagine. I don't know, I, I guess, guess to make him like not so villainous, you know, to have some kind of like complexity to his character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the White Alice sections were like very, um, yeah, they felt they just kind of flowed in this way that people speak of when they talk about when they're when they write. And like it's only happened to me a few times in my 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 career as a writer. Um, I really enjoyed imagining that space and like the physical space, but also the space of them living together in this kind of, you know, harmony, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really interesting what you said about the it being too late when some like the that 
concept being included i grew up in the seacoast of new hampshire mm. about um f- four miles from a nuclear uh power plant mm. um and i there's like they test the siren first of all so you get used to the siren going off which is if you're with it like boston is like too close to the power plant for most survival um uh uh and we had to take a piece of paper to school when i was a kid that signed off that if you if the siren actually went off because there was some sort of accident at the power plant that you could take a pill that's supposed to help you with radiation wow yes I know and so this is a normal part of my childhood I remember taking the form to school where were the pills kept like your teachers had the the, the nurses the nurse's office that seems like a bad distribution system (laughs) (laughs) well first of all it was like five miles away like the nuclear power plant goes we would all go to Boston I think would be at risk for the winds right like that's what we're talking about here so it's very fascinating like the safeguards that we like put up just to make ourselves feel better about what we're doing of that like imminent danger um I was in undergrad when I said that in a class and the whole class looked at me how you both looked at me when I was just telling this story (laughs) where everyone was like what and I was like I, I, I don't know I'm like but we're not far from it that far from it right now it's in um Seabrook New Hampshire so yeah and it's still functioning like I it's... think I believe so they test the siren they tested the siren up and through I was in high school I believe they still use it um wow I, yeah yeah um I wow. think that in Boston by uh food not bombs started I believe because of that power plant being built. oh wow yes I love food not bombs that's yes. great yes that's incredible um, yeah so that really? defi- okay, definitely history. Yeah, yeah, it definitely felt very real when it's like, well, it's too late. Like when I realized that those pills wouldn't have done anything for me as a kid, right? Um, it's like the 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 duck and cover, you know, all of all of that, right? Um, but yes, definitely white Alice. I think it's it's giving me very much um the word for world is forest by ursula k Le Guin, mm-hmm. um where mm-hmm. they have a, a utopian society that has no violence in it but then the outside world creeps in yeah. and then that's when they have to protect themselves right. from the outside world absolutely. yeah absolutely yeah totally and i think like i mean that's such a like interesting anecdote and like it totally direct like that totally directly connects to this idea of this the the, the these constant threats right and sort of yeah. internalizing those threats and how do those manifest in different ways yeah yeah like growing up on the west coast where i was like always you know we would have these like earthquake drills constantly you know yeah. for like the big one that would like supposedly you know it was still potential you know we do where you'd have to constantly be like hiding under your desk bracing yourself I remember that it was just the sense of sort of growing up in the the in in the the shadow of like potential like constant catastrophe and it feeling you know you kind of have to minimize it for yourself like that's not going to happen but of course these things do happen you know? yeah um and what would you do if that actually did happen so yeah it's definitely like an interesting question absolutely the futility of preparing for full rip nine is like i don't yeah yeah like, yeah um 
Yes. So speaking about like White Alice and decisions around White Alice, um, a particularly interesting portion of the book for me was the ending. We've talked about it already with Grant some, but with um, Aurora and Willow and Rose or Nari deciding to make their own path forward by heading back to the States looking for Damien. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that decision in the ending? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so like the first chapter of the book what I wrote was the first, what, I'm sorry, the first like section of the book I wrote was the first chapter where like the workers arrive in the camp. And that I wrote, like that changed a little bit, but the premise was mostly the same. And I also knew that I wanted to write an end where two of the women would leave together um, in the wake of like total destruction, right? Um and that it would be like two characters who maybe were at odds with one another, but eventually would come together. Like I really wanted to resist, I think like a resolution that would be like, you know, like they leave with men or a man or like white Alice like comes and like sweeps them up. Like that was also like really important that they kind of had their own accountability and direction, um, but for different reasons. And so, I had this image of like, you know, like I was like the book will end with, with one, like one woman driving and then the other woman, like then seen in the dark and the image of her illuminating this like women's are like covered and she's like covered in blood, you know, and she's like walking with this dog. Um, And I was like, that's, that will be like one of the final images of the book. And so I had to like figure out, you know, like how I would get because <laughs> like I know like a lot of things would have to happen in order to justify that. Um, and I wanted it to end with like, so they would see, you know, these lights on the border and that they would return to the place that they had left behind, right? Because I think a lot of the book, the the energy is about leaving, right? Like abandoning your home or like leaving your family or looking for another place and going north but I felt like it was like it felt very natural for them to like return to the problems right like return south and I think one of the questions I had was like <laughs> like what is collective responsibility what is accountability in the face of like catastrophe like is it morally correct or um justifiable to kind of carve out your own space you know create your own yeah you know, self-contained community and then just forget about everything else. And I, or is there, a, is there, are we sort of like accountable to like every, you know, the, the community or the country or, I, I mean, it's not really about the, the United States so much, but about like the collective of humanity um, that, you know, that exists outside of that border. And so I think it's a somewhat hopeful ending in the sense they kind of return to their problems. You know, like Rose has been sort of like running away from her problems the entire the entire book, um, but she returned, you know, she's going to return to her mother, um, return to the South and return to like the reality that she's left. Um, and for Willow, you know, she's she's been raised in this in this totally self-contained space. Like her sense of moral justice has been completely predicated and um, defined to a certain extent by her mothers, right? By her, by by the brood that she's, the, the, the women that she's been sort of raised by. And so I think her return going South is a way for her to like kind of see outside of like 
the self-contained world that she's been she's been sort of like forced to live in um so yeah that was it I was like they're gonna drive you know what happens when they get south like who can say right yeah but, they'll, but they're definitely returning to yeah. to a kind of collective yeah well it's interesting because we just we just talked about a wizard of earthsea and in that story it's like you have to go and face your problems yeah or else yeah. they'll keep coming they'll keep chasing after you no matter how far away you run away from them so absolutely it's yeah. very yeah very apt I think yeah and there's also you know I mean if the book is sort of in some way grappling with climate crisis questions like this is a collective a collective challenge um that's experienced differently so I wanted it to kind of move back towards the collective as, as opposed to individualized desires. Cause I think a lot of the book is about those individual desires and like what it means to kind of like forge your own path, um, despite others. So, yeah. 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 And also just like a, you know, like a, a car, a car scene. I mean, I don't actually drive. So it was, like, it was actually really funny for me to like, describe people driving. <laughs> it's like that freedom I'll experience one day. Um, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Um, so, for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip to our last question. Okay. Um, sure. And then we'll play a silly game. So, yeah. um, who are your literary role models or if not role models, authors that inspire you in some way? Oh gosh. I mean, we talked about Ursula K. Le Guin. So, uh, obviously, like, I think, um, she's someone who, like is interested like in interrogating utopian thinking like I think that's and I think that's like a very difficult or brave and challenging choice as a writer um I really love her work um uh, there was a book a novel called I don't know if you, if you read the severance by Ling Ma um which I really loved okay yeah yeah great really good I was I was looking at our show notes from the when we discussed Camp Zero and Teddy yes. picked severance for the book recommendation okay. after reading camp zero you liked camp zero read severance so that's cool <laughs> oh that's awesome thank you it's yeah. very very complimentary because i i love that novel i think i think and i also uh, ling Ma's also written some incredible short stories like i am there's there's like a bunch like it kind of there's like kind of the the post-apocalyptic setting i think is really well done and also quite funny and um yeah, like the kind of malaise in that book and also like the questions around race and kind of connecting to culture and like where one's from. Like there's there's so much in that book that I really loved. Um, so that was a novel that I looked at. Um, there's another novel called The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa mm -hmm. that I also really loved um, in terms of sort of like thinking about like physical space and how memory maps onto that. So that was really incredible. I'm like looking at my bookcase now. Um, <laughs> So many. I mean, there's like so many yeah. novels that I read. And it's actually one of those things where like there's such a big body of this this type of work, I think. Like, yeah. But I a lot of it has just been relegated to like this this category of like dystopian genre, which I think in some ways um can be somewhat limiting because it doesn't like imagine possibilities beyond that. Um yeah. yeah. Do do either of you have any recommendations for me to read? <laughs> um what else did we say for camp zero sarah do you have let me let me pull it 
because we definitely did severance i bet you money that you're gonna have read most if not all of them (laughs) have have either of you read ducks by kate beaton it's a graphic novel oh i have been i keep seeing it at the bookstore it's on my list too yeah yeah that's that's a good one okay that's a good one that's a really i mean it's totally different but it's also set in like the oil industry um our 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 full recommendations from the episode were the word for world is forest by ursula k Le Guin, Mm -hmm. the left hand of darkness by ursula Mm -hmm. k Le Guin, parable of the sower Mm, yeah i love that Uh, book too yeah severance by ling ma um american war by omar el akkad Uh uh-huh yeah yeah Yeah. totally yeah totally i'm all about like successionism and separation he's also a canadian writer writing about america (laughs) yeah right um teddy you also said mad adam trilogy by margaret atwood Atwood. i have read that as well yeah (laughs) yeah this is so fun fortress by s.a jones okay i haven't read that that was a teddy too that one is very whack but i loved white alice in this like i thought that it related to white alice in that it had a lot of like what does it mean to be removed completely from the world that you know in like sort of an isolationist space it went very in odd directions mostly I'm just trying to get other people to read it because I can't find anyone else who's like read it and wants to talk to me about it so mm-hmm. if you read it let me know yeah, <laughs> it's, I will force it's definitely very bizarre yeah, yeah. Okay. and um, who's yeah. the author Jones the fortress okay. S.A. Jones I think S.A. Jones S.A. Okay, Jones yeah yeah I mean I think maybe one of the only other ones I could think of would be if you haven't read um the the city we became by nk jemison i haven't read that i've read other i've read a lot of her short stories yes but I yeah haven't read that, book. that that one's interesting it's not uh it's like it's more of a like lovecraftian kind of uh mm-hmm. story but it talks a lot about like the responsibility that a, an individual has for the collective so mm. cool definitely part of it absolutely okay. <laughs> we just did readers of yeah, for... <laughs> <laughs> i'm a big yeah i mean yeah. i love talking about books like, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's perfect You're yeah right. perfect <laughs> all right teddy okay. you want to do the you go ahead with the yes. game yeah, so, sure. so here's here's the deal we play a game at the end of every episode based on where we got our book for that episode from Mm -hmm. um so because we are librarians you get one point if you got your book from the public library because you're supporting your public library you get no points but no deductions if you got it from a big name box store like Mm -hmm. i'm going out of order again it's okay keep going going. you get half a point if you get it from an indie bookstore because we love indie bookstores and they're amazing okay you get no points if you get it from like target walmart barnes and noble it's fine amazon okay no oh no you get a two-point deduction if oh, you get okay. it from Amazon. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. We're very okay. anti-Amazon in the house. So our question for you mm-hmm. is, um, what are you reading right now and where did you get it? Mm. <laughs> what am I reading right now? Well, actually I am reading um, The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff. Mm-hmm. And I got it from Harvard Bookstore. Nice. Okay. Okay. We'll count that, but also- you get a million points anyway because you're our guest and you win. <laughs> 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 
that's the twist. Perfect. Yeah, that's, that's the, the twist. twist. You were always gonna win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always do indie bookstores. I mean, yeah, some yeah. Of good ones in Boston, as as, yeah. as oh, you, you both know. So yeah. Well, okay. This was so great. We really, really, really appreciate you coming on and talking with us. Um, it's very appreciated. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or mention or anything on the podcast? Um, no, not anything specific. It was such a pleasure to talk about the book with both of you. Um, I really appreciate your thoughtful questions and yeah, your insights on libraries and <laughs> Also, your work as librarians, like major respects, like, oh, incredible, incredible work. So, thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thanks so much. Enjoy your Sunday morning. Thank you. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Hey. Thank you for listening to Shelving Cart. Shelving Cart was created, written, and recorded by Sarah and Teddy, edited by Sarah, and the theme music is by Kate Gardine. If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please rate and review us on any of your podcast listening apps. We greatly appreciate it.